Welcome to Warwick Podcasts. My name is Tom Abbott. Digital cameras are everywhere, a standard part of a modern mobile phone and a nearly ubiquitous replacement for film photography. The explosion of digital imagery raises new risks of crime, but also provides new sources of evidence. There remain, however, questions over the value and credibility of digital images, video and other types of evidence when they reach the courtroom. Dr Matthew Sorrell is a Senior Lecturer in Telecommunications and Multimedia Engineering at the University of Adelaide, South Australia. He is General Chair of the eForensics 2009 Conference on Forensic Applications and Techniques in Telecommunications, Information and Multimedia, and he is an Associate Editor of the International Journal on Digital Crime and Forensics. Matthew is currently a short-term visiting fellow under the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Warwick. Dr. Sorrell will be speaking about digital forensics at a public lecture at Warwick on the 23rd of September, and I took the opportunity to speak with him about his research. I started by asking him to define what is meant by the term digital forensics. Digital forensics is a fairly broad term, and it is really trying to incorporate much more than just the computer forensics that we, we now come to accept, for example, seizing somebody's hard drive and uh, extracting files from it which might have been deleted, for example, or looking at uh, security logs and so on. We're now in such a pervasive digital environment with such devices as your iPod, your mobile phone, your digital camera, um, and so on. Even you know the, the car computer that you have in your, uh, that controls your car. All of these things are now digital devices and they contain evidence, they contain uh, logs or accidents or crimes or um, other records of, of what occurred in a particular instance. The term digital forensics is intended to try and capture the research that's being done and the operations that are being done where you're no longer dealing with crime in a physical space um, but in essentially an environment where there are di um, digital devices that capture some of that evidence with, uh, and, and what you can make of that information. I mean, many people might be aware of the recent case of the um, uh, paedophile who was captured because he'd uh, warped his face on a picture and there was an exercise to unwarp it and they could then identify them. Are we covering really just the kind of physical manipulation of images or is there much more to this in terms of what data can be extracted from a digital object for the use of forensic analysis? That particular photo is quite interesting because uh, it's a particularly stupid thing to leave your face in an object like that, even in, in that distorted sort of environment. It was pretty much asking for trouble. Um, without going into the details, I can pretty much assure you there was much more in that photograph than just the face. Uh, but to give you a more general idea, every time you take a photograph, whether that be with your mobile phone or whether it be with your digital camera, um, the pervasive standard that's used, which is JPEG, which I think everybody's familiar with, contains two things. One is it contains a header of metadata. Metadata is information about the image as opposed to the image itself. So the camera actually writes in and says, I am this make and model of camera, this is the time. Um, if you've got a GPS unit attached, it can also say, this is where I am. That's quite unusual. Um, and here are the settings, here's, how, here's 
what the focal length was, here's the lens that was being used, whether the flash was on or off, whatever. And all of that information is contained right up front. So that's there for a start. That information is in clear text, which means that any competent hacker can come in and modify it at will. Uh, and in fact, it's quite common to strip it out if you happen to know that that exists. The other thing, though, is that every single engineering decision that was made in the manufacture of your very inexpensive digital camera compromises uh, the design and leaves a forensic trace that is unique to that particular manufacturer. So Sony, Fuji, Pentax, Nikon, Canon, etc., all do things slightly differently. They do things their own way. And the result of that is that you, if you do strip out that metadata or if you modify it, you change Sony to Fuji, for example, the rest of the file is not consistent. And that sometimes becomes important when you're dealing with sophisticated modification of images. And the modification of that image you know, is done for various reasons. Uh, and sometimes it's important to actually trace back that provenance to work out where did it come from. Why was this photograph modified? What are the implications? And we're not just talking about uh, photographs here, are we? We're also talking about documents, video, audio files. This, this very track that we're recording now is, is logging particular metadata about what we're doing. That's exactly right. So if you download this podcast, in fact, you can probably find little clicks where the edits have been have taken place, of course. Um, in fact, I might even do that as an exercise <laughs> when I download it. Oh, metaphysical, metaphysical references here. Yeah, that's quite right. I mean, with, with video, you have, um, for example, frames might be cut away from the, from the, uh, the set of video. There's uh, also examples in audio where you uh, can embed information. One of the uh, issues that is of particular concern is the secret hiding of information, steganography, in a video or in a photograph or in an audio file so it looks to all intents and purposes like a perfectly innocent photograph you go to an anonymous uh, internet lounge and you download that photograph you run it through your special software and out comes the secret information that's actually been embedded in there uh, this can occur because the eye is quite insensitive to a, a wide range of noise so you can inject that signal it looks like noise to the eye, you just don't even notice it, and yet it contains specific information. So that's, for example, a wide uh, area of research, so-called steganography and steganalysis. Uh, this can occur in all sorts of different media environments. Um, documents can occur in both physical form and, of course, in electronic form. Um, very good old example of this is money. How do you determine whether money's been counterfeited, for example? And that translates into the modern world about financial transactions that occur electronically and making sure that you have a clear audit trail to be able to trace where money's going. So how are law enforcement agencies approaching this at the moment? This is a very challenging and new area, I guess, for many police forces and intelligence forces to try and tackle. What value are they getting out of this and what value could they realise from engaging with this more, more, um, in more depth? There's two aspects to the answer to that question. The first is that the evidence is already there in many cases. We have child pornographers put a large repository of information into their system. You bring down that network and now you've got a million photographs. Uh, and the information that's there tells you a lot about which cameras were used, um, and as a consequence you've got some idea of the date of when those photographs might have been taken 
you've got some idea about the location because of where those cameras might be sold. So there's one aspect there. Now that's becoming a very active area. Um, I've recently been working with the Criminal Research Institute of the, with the National Gendarmerie uh, in France and they have an active unit looking at file extraction and counterfeit detection and so on in, in digital environments. The other aspect of this is that the fact that you now have digital information allows you to work in a digital domain and work much more efficiently. So there is a very active area, for example, in the United States where you have a whole range of different government agencies who have databases that date back to the 1950s. They're all different, they're all non-interoperable. Uh, you know, the, the IRS, their tax service versus their uh, immigration versus their banks versus their uh, immigration versus all of the airlines, for example. So bringing information together in an integrated, coherent way into a single dashboard um, so you can trace the same person through all of those records very, very easily without having to know or care about how to operate all of those different databases becomes a real opportunity now in the digital environment. Another aspect that I'm now working on currently is in video surveillance uh, monitoring. It's a very challenging problem to sit through three or four weeks of 24-7 video surveillance. It's the most tedious job you could possibly imagine. Um, and yet, if you don't look at that video surveillance frame by frame, you can miss something very, very quick that might be crucial to understanding what's going on in that surveillance. So as an engineer, I'm now looking at robust digital techniques that can go through that uh, that video and leave what you might call a seism seismographic trace. So this is the level of motion. Uh, what are the good metrics for doing that? And will they stand up in court? So that we can go to the court and say, Your Honour, here's the four minutes of our uh, suspect entering the warehouse at 12.30pm and at 6pm we can see the police arriving uh, and removing the body and here's the seismic trace that proves that in the previous 12 hours and in the intervening six hours, nothing happened except for this cat that walked past the video. That's quite an advance because we can, we can really exploit the digital environment to do that sort of flexi flexible processing. You'll notice that we're not, in my particular case, I'm not dealing with what is the video actually showing us. I'm merely concerned with, is the video showing us motion? Because if it does, then this is something that we can take to an automated system or to a manual system and deal with at a higher level. It very much simplifies the problem. Because it's a major problem, isn't it, in the digital age, that just the sheer amount of data, the sheer quantity of information that a law enforcement agency has to filter in order to kind of find those little nuggets of gold. Um, that, that's a massive problem, isn't it? That's exactly right. I mean, it's the, it's the needle in the haystack written a million times over. Um, there is so much information there. The issue is not whether or not it exists, it's where is that information and what is the, what is the, where is the smoking gun, effectively? Uh, an example of this is a consultancy I did recently in which uh, a human resources company in Adelaide had uh, suspected that a previous employee had stolen their customer database. So they handed me his Mac computer, and Macs are notoriously difficult to recover files from, and gave me 48 hours, because I was being paid by the hour, to say, find something, find some evidence here. And uh, so we scanned the hard drive, and then we went through it with just looking for little strings of text. It was about all we could do in the time that we had available. 
And then we started looking for the particular clients they were concerned about. And this little internet address, the little URL kept popping up. I thought, gee, that's a bit interesting. So I phoned them up and said, what's going on? And they said, oh, our database is on uh, an internal web server. Uh, ah, bingo. We then filtered through and found every record. It turned out to have a timestamp on every single record. So we were able to reconstruct their employees' access to that database down to the second for two and a half years, once we realised what we were looking for. And we were then able to show that in the last six months, he's gone from a particular type of behaviour to a very different, much more aggressive type of behaviour, which when we then looked at that, we could see that he was actually going through the database in alphabetical order, systematically downloading all of these records. On the basis of that evidence and some co uh, collabor uh, corroborating physical evidence, we were then able to get what's called an Anton Pillar order, which is a civil search and seize, raid the guy's premises, seize some computers, which gave us nothing conclusive, but also boxes and boxes and boxes of printouts of the customer database. Um, beyond that, I don't know what happened. They settled out of court and they won't tell me. I was just the, the forensic expert. But, you know, there's an example of uh, the needle in the haystack sort of problem. And uh, it just wasn't obvious. There's nothing, there's nothing in there that said, here it is, I'm guilty. It was only the interpretation of that, ev that evidence that turned out to be quite uh, powerful. I suppose one of the problems, though, for a law enforcement agent is that not all uh, amendments or, or changes to images are actually made intentionally by an individual. Many of the devices that we're talking about, cameras and mobile phones and MP3 recorders, are quite capable of changing the very nature of a particular image themselves without any kind of human intervention. That's quite right. And in fact, really these things fall into three categories. One is the deliberate and very obvious manipulation and the face, the, the swirled face you mentioned earlier is a good example of that. The second is deliberate manipulation, which is trying to hide uh, some information or mislead an investigator. And that's quite common, for example, in trying to uh, frame somebody. Um, and the third one is what your camera does that you don't realise. I have a terrific example which I'm going to be presenting at the lecture uh, of Romario, the Brazilian soccer player who came briefly to the Adelaide United Football Club. The photograph has extraordinarily good provenance. It was taken by the head of sex crimes unit in the South Australian Police as a fan, just sitting by the side of the fence there. Uh, Romario's jersey with the big Reebok logo out of the blue, one of these images had a, has an enormous Adidas logo very prominently in the middle of his chest. And the question is, how on earth did that happen? And it turns out to be quite complicated. It's uh, the flash looking through the jersey fabric. The fabric uh, weave happens to match the pitch of the uh, pixels on the camera. And as a result, the camera looks at this and goes, hmm, there's something there I need to enhance. And so every little intelligent step it does for white balance and colour correction and shadow correction and so on goes, this is important, I need to pull that out. And the next thing you know, there it is in the middle of the image. Um, it's a bizarre example, uh, but it, it clearly illustrates the point. Uh, anyone who's taken a photograph of the flash at night of their friends will often find that the underwear now shows straight through the fabric. Um, this is certainly well known amongst paparazzi. Um, and the reason is that the camera is actually very sensitive to infrared light and there's a significant amount of infrared in a flash uh, light and as a consequence quite often you can see straight through fabric, not what you intended to do, 
And the result in the press, of course, is that you have something that's unusable. Does this create problems for um, law enforcement agencies when they get to court? There are a number of challenges that arise. The lawyers certainly are quick to challenge any digital evidence. Um, I've recently been involved in a case where I was asked to extract a video from a mobile phone um, and it's a case where somebody's claiming that they were arrested with un unnecessary violence. It's a mobile phone camera, the image is taken at night, the only uh, illumination is a distant street light and a torch being held by a police officer. The result is that you just really can't see anything. Now, all I'm allowed to do in the enhancement of that image under Australian law is adjust the brightness and the contrast because that's, a, in other words, what I'm doing is I'm keeping all of those pixels in the same monotonic order. Um, however, that's now being challenged in the courts because I didn't do this in a linear way. I applied an exponential relationship so that the brights don't go so bright that they wash out but the darks are actually spread out so that you can see some of the artefacts that are occurring there. Um, so there's an interesting challenge for you because it, it may, you know, what I did was very sensible, it complied with the law, but it's now being challenged and the evidence may in fact end up being thrown out because it's just not being accepted. It does raise questions, doesn't it, about the degree to which professionals like yourself or law enforcement agents are able to enhance images to be able to deduce or you find useful data within that image and then the impact that that enhancement for detection purposes has within the courts. I mean, how do we get around that problem? Is there a, do we need to kind of educate our legal profession um, in greater detail about why certain things are happening and what is truth and what is not truth in, in digital imagery? I think so and this is really the, the crux of the research that I'm interested in doing because I think it's partly that education, but it's also the research needs to be done. It needs to be done in a scientifically objective way so that we've got that evidence, the scientific evidence. And um, I mean, generally speaking, for example, DNA was not really accepted as a particularly effective uh, mechanism of evidence gathering 20 years ago. Now we accept it pretty much as routine because the science has been done not only to show how useful it is, but then to prove it to the courts. It's been through the court system. So uh, on the one hand, I accept the challenge of the evidence that I've put in front of the court, but I also, um, because it'll let, it provides an opportunity to test and to elaborate on what exactly is going on, and then that establishes a, pr a legal precedent. On the other hand, it's frustrating that um, what I've done complies with the requirements. Now, to put a contrasting view, suppose that you have um, several frames of surveillance video of a car and you're trying to read the license plate and each one of those frames by itself it doesn't quite give you enough you know you can't tell if that's a five or an s for example um, in Australia it would be you would have to look at all of those individual frames and that's all you've got what would be nice though is to superimpose those those frames so that you end up with what's called a superpositioning or a a super resolution image of that number plate and as a result you've now got much more reliable information. You may still not be able to read one or two digits but you can get the rest of them. Um, from my discussions with the gendarmerie that's quite acceptable under French law. Uh, they're a little bit more advanced in their use of digital evidence and, and the research, the, the forensic research that goes into this area 
under Australian law, uh, this would simply be an unacceptable process to use. Uh, another aspect of this, though, is that forensic photographers, so these are the people who go and investigate a crime scene, are, are finding it increasingly difficult to actually maintain a film camera. You can't get the parts. You can barely get the film. Uh, I had a black and white film developed recently where the negatives had, well, in fact, the, the roll had to be shipped interstate to be processed. Then it came back, at which point it was scanned, turned into JPEGs and printed, which caused a great deal of consternation because I specifically wanted to look at this image without the JPEG compression. I was looking for specific artefacts that I would only find on film. Um, but that was the only way by which I could get this, this film processed. Same thing's now happening in, in the forensic environment. They're being forced to go to digital. And this now creates issues of completeness. Do we have a complete record of all of the photographs that were taken on site at a crime scene? Um, so I have a student looking at how would you put in place an audit log system that sits between your camera and the memory stick that keeps a record of everything that's gone onto the image, it, uh, onto the memory stick. Take that away, put it aside, that becomes your film negative. So if the images are challenged, we can go back to that record and actually prove to the satisfaction of the court that this is a complete record of everything that was there. So, you know, gradually we are building up the science and we are building up the, um, the technology and the confidence to be able to put this forward. It now comes down to uh, the science needs to be challenged in court, the court needs to be uh, able to accept the new technologies and over time that becomes a part of common law and then everybody's happy. Um, but we're at a very, very early stage at the moment where lawyers are sceptical and I don't have a problem with them being sceptical, but we need to actually develop both the science and the understanding in the legal system. And a lot of this process is dependent on the kind of data, the kind of processes and manipulations that the um, electronics manufacturers are building in as part of how they, as you said, as part of how they engineer these devices. How, how is the, the electronics industry responding to the challenges that you're raising around um, digital evidence and digital forensics? Um, we, we're really seeing three responses. One is certain manufacturers of uh, uh, consumer electronics don't know, don't care, not their problem. Um, and, and they're really just oblivious to the issue. And it, it's a pity from my perspective because technology doesn't live in a vacuum. It lives in a, you know, we, we use it as a society. Uh, we use it in certain ways, sometimes for good, sometimes for not quite so good. Um, there's also a significant for digital forensics industry. So uh, even locally here, for example, there are companies that are looking specifically to exploit uh, digital information for forensic purposes and selling that into uh, the law enforcement and uh, other agencies. And finally, there are the manufacturers who will actually respond to a request to embed a watermark, for example, into um, the images that they produce or the, the photocopiers to distort in a particular way that allows you to identify that particular photocopier. Um, or will embed a uh, even things like a, a a serial number into the metadata because that becomes useful from a forensic perspective. So I'm not, we don't see a lot of antagonism but we do see a lot of indifference. Um, occasionally we throw up some surprises. One of the things that I discovered fairly early on just by 
by analysing a whole bunch of photographs was that there are two camera manufacturers who've clearly bought their JPEG uh, engine, the, the, that piece of software, from the same source because the file structures are identical, the parameters they use are identical, the algorithm they use to determine what the parameters should be results in files that are very, very similar. And I happened to be talking to the representative of one of those manufacturers in Australia, and she was extremely sceptical until I showed her the evidence. And when that went back up the line, at the end of the day, they don't really care uh, about that information, uh, except that it became a point of interest for them to understand this, because they're, they're trying to sell digital cameras now into the law enforcement agencies for forensic use, so they're very interested in how can we do this better, how can we meet your needs. Um, so, yeah, we don't see a lot of antagonism, even though we do occasionally antagonise. Um, you know, I've had a, a paper where I've been quite blunt about the shortcomings of a particular popular piece of photo editing software. Um, we don't get much comeback from that, but hopefully they'll read it and, and fix their software. There's, there's bugs in there that have been around for 20 years. You've mentioned um, a big need for additional research then to develop frameworks that that help the legal profession, that help law enforcement agencies make better use, more effective use uh, of digital forensics. Where do you think the kind of key areas that academics, that universities need to be working with these professions in order to, to, to make this work for everyone? Well, I'll give you a specific example which relates to digital photography and then extends into digital video. And that is just how valuable is this particular image from a forensic perspective? And uh, this, is, this is an area where I'm collaborating currently with a professor in scientific photography at uh, RMIT University in Victoria, in, South, in uh, Victoria, Australia. And I'm also looking to collaborate with a number of other organisations internationally. Um, take, for example, a, a high-end 10 megapixel digital SLR, you know, super quality professional camera. You have a perception there that that image, what you see is the truth. Uh, and particularly if it's being used, for example, by a forensic photographer at a crime scene, in actual fact, what you see is what the camera saw. It's not the truth necessarily, uh, or it's much more than the truth as your eyes would see it. Uh, we, there is so much processing going on to make that image sharper, more, um, to make the colours more natural to the eye. That doesn't mean that we're actually getting useful colorimetric information. We can't zoom in down to four pixels and tell your eye colour. We can't accurately measure down to the, a quarter of a millimetre the length of your ear. We can't see every strand of hair. Um, not everything you saw on Blade Runner is true, in other words. Step back to the other end. So in other words, you can't trust that high-end camera quite as much as you might think. We need to have some sort of objective measures to say we can do this, but we can't do that with that particular camera. I've already mentioned infrared sensitivity, which distorts the colour and what you actually see in the image. At the other end, mobile phone cameras are a particularly useful forensic tool because sometimes they were the cameras that were there, and that's it. Um, the really famous examples of that, one was the, the bombings in Bali, which Australians are always very aware of, where the only imagery of the bomber coming into the, the hotel where this occurred was somebody's mobile phone camera happened to be videoing a birthday party 
saw somebody walk through the background with a backpack on and the next thing you know it explodes. That's the only piece of evidence we've got. Um, so you have to make the most of it. But what can we tell from that extremely lossy, low quality camera with a plastic lens with a fixed focus where they've thrown away so much information to compress that video down to the right size? And the answer is quite a lot. Not as much as you would get from the high-end camera. But if we were dealing with this in a criminal court sort of environment, proving that a particular person is in a particular location, um, there is information there. There is a tendency to throw it out right now, dismiss that evidence because it's inconclusive. You know, sure, I can't see your face clearly. I can't clearly identify uh, your, your facial pattern, but I can at least estimate your height. Um, I can at least estimate if it's a video, uh, your, the way in which you walk, and you put that in front, in, in front of the professional anatomist and be able to come to some sort of conclusion. In particular, I might be able to use it to exclude you as a suspect, which is always a useful thing to be able to do. Um, but we really need to be able to understand that sort of area. So this is a major research focus that we're looking at at the moment. For more information about the public lecture, visit www.warwick.ac.uk slash go slash IAS.